The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Where Were You in 92 is a production of iHeartRadio. A special note, this episode features themes of sexual assault and may not be suitable for all listeners. The idea of being this, like, fierce, intelligent, open, vulnerable person who is also, like, so fierce with her sexuality and just being, like, whatever she wanted kind of blew my mind wide, wide open. Welcome to Where Are You in 92, a podcast in which I, your host, Jason Lanfier, look back at the major hits, one-hit wonders, shocking news stories, and irresistible scandals that shaped what might be the wildest, most eclectic, most controversial 12 months of music ever. This week, with her groundbreaking debut album, Little Earthquakes, Tori Amos ripped the music world apart, mining her pain, her history, her fears, her fantasies, and her path to salvation, the singer-songwriter reached deep into her core to craft a record that sounded like nothing else before it. Its most poignant and painful track was Me and a Gun, a song about her sexual assault. Long before the Me Too movement, Amos was a hero and crusader who spoke truth to power, not only with her music, but with her work as the first spokesperson for Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network the largest nonprofit anti-sexual assault organization in the U.S. In this episode, we explore one of the most gut-wrenching, soul-bearing, innovative releases of the 90s and the uphill battle Amos faced to get it made. Sitting down in the iHeart studio, the musician reveals the story and process behind Little Earthquakes in her own words, reflecting on the legacy of the 30-year-old touchstone that ignited her career and literally saved lives. Certain records leave their mark on you in ways you'll never fully comprehend. They pull you from the mire, take you in their arms, and whisk you away to another world. A world that feels safer. A world where you're understood. Where you find the you you long to be. The real you. These albums hold up a mirror. They show you the truth, which, yes, can be painful, brutal even. But that truth emboldens you. That truth sets you free. Tori Amos' 1992 debut, Little Earthquakes, was one of those albums for me. I discovered it years after its release. I was a troubled, lonely, bullied teenager. Most of the everyday connections I was establishing felt tenuous and fleeting because I wasn't sure how to be myself. I felt like I was acting, portraying someone I thought people wanted me to be. The smart one, the funny one, the talented one, the pious one. Perfect. But I was still a target of ridicule. I was an anxious, sexually confused drama geek trying to distract my audience from the secret behind the curtain. My parents' marriage was imploding. My father, a recovering alcoholic, had lost his job, fallen off the wagon, and was having an affair. He and my mother were waking me up every night with their screaming matches. He was crashing cars and getting arrested. 
I was getting straight A's and hating him for shattering the illusion of perfection I was fighting to maintain. To save me from the mayhem and the violence, my mother sent me away to live with my Baptist minister and his wife, somewhere closer to God. I had already started turning to music for escape, but at that time, one of my few close friends was falling in love with Tori Amos, devouring her discography, breathing in her angst and blowing out smoke rings of confidence, radiating a badass, cooler-than-thou attitude I admired. I hitched a ride with her on that journey, buying a copy of Little Earthquakes as I awkwardly settled into my new fake bedroom with my new fake parents and the parsonage beside our church. I had no idea what I was in for, no idea how much the music would speak to me. Me, a wounded and furious queer teenager who had somehow found himself shipped off to some stranger's home where religion was the centerpiece, while my religion was the beauty and trauma seeping from my headphones. But enough about me. Let's talk about Tori. Tori Amos was a prodigy, drawn to the piano as soon as she could talk. She was playing at two and writing her own songs at three. She was admitted to the prestigious Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore at just five years old, becoming the youngest musician ever to be accepted to the school. She studied classical, but it wasn't her bag, and she hated sight reading. Instead, in her free time, she immersed herself in a very different kind of music, the guitar rock of acts like Led Zeppelin. She had a very religious upbringing. Amos has said her Methodist pastor father thought music would save her from boys, when in fact she wound up connecting to rock music on a sexual and spiritual level. Legends like Zeppelin frontman Robert Plant enthralled and seduced her. As she writes in Tori Amos' Piece by Piece, her 2005 book with music journalist and critic Ann Powers, quote, they were conjoined with their instruments. You could not divide them. And you couldn't invade them either, unlike the way the church and its ideas had invaded my consciousness. She was looking for, as she puts it, quote unquote, sensuality without the subservience. She wanted the profane to become sacred. Like so many budding rock stars, Amos was rebellious and impudent. And for that, she was booted from the conservatory at the age of 11. As you can imagine, her parents were gutted. Knowing her talent was too exceptional to go to waste, her father nudged her out of the nest. A couple of months before she turned 14, the Reverend Dr. Edison McKinley Amos drove her to Georgetown to find her a gig performing. As she writes in her 2020 book, Resistance, he had, quote, more than a dose of Mama Rose in him referring to the memorable, definitive stage mom in the musical Gypsy. He became Tori's dadager. She recalls the sermon he gave her on the way to Georgetown, in which he said something to the effect of, quote, The way I see it, you are drowning in your own self-destructive mediocrity. You have spent three years of ignoring your potential. Her father's clerical collar on full display, the two hit up several restaurants and bars, but no dice. Finally, they ended up at a gay bar called Mr. Henry's, where the manager agreed to take a chance on Amos. Sitting at the bar's upright piano, she took request, vowing to learn songs she didn't know if she was invited to come back to play. She was invited back the following Friday. Reverend Amos was undeterred when churchgoers expressed concern that he and his daughter were now affiliated with an establishment frequented by homosexuals. In fact, his reply couldn't have been more astute. There is no safer place for a 13-year-old girl than in an all-gay bar. As the years passed, Amos would play for tonier establishments and for more moneyed and conservative patrons. She found herself in a hotel bar near the White House, breathing in the cigar smoke of bankers, politicians, lobbyists, intellectuals, and corporate bigwigs, and receding into the background. She remained loyal to religion, attending Sunday services until the age of 21. That's when she decided she needed to get out from under her father's watchful eye. In 1984, she moved to Los Angeles, where by chance, she ended up living behind a Methodist church. She met other artists, folks who, like her, were looking to shed the shackles of their past and forge their own path. Her path, or so she thought at the time, was a pursuit of a rock career. In the mid-80s, 
the piano wasn't seen as cool at all, especially if a woman was playing it. Yes, Amos apparently beat out Sarah Jessica Parker for a 1985 Kellogg's Just Right commercial in which she plays a cereal box piano. But you know, that was cereal. Amos's demos, which heavily featured the piano, were met with disdain. As she writes in Piece by Piece, the producers and A&R guys would listen and reply, nobody wants this. The piano girl thing is dead. If she wanted to get out of the bar circuit, she'd have to ditch the instrument she'd been conjoined with for 20 years. Rock music and very big hair seemed like her only option. So in 1986, she formed the band Why Can't Tori Read, its name a nod to her struggles reading music while studying at Peabody. Fun fact, the band's drummer was Matt Sorum, who'd eventually play with Guns N' Roses. Atlantic Records put out the group's self-titled debut album in 1988. Sales were poor. Reviews were no better. Watch the video for Why Can't Tori Reed's first single, The Big Picture, and you'll see traces of the dynamic performer and vocalist Amos would become. She even plays a little piano in it, but she's drowning in excess, stifled by overproduction. Decked out in skin-tight black pants and a billowy sleeved top, she prances around like a new wave pirate on a soundstage made to resemble an L.A. back alley, bearing her midriff and brandishing a ridiculous samurai sword. Teased and towering, her signature bright red hair had never been closer to God. The response to the big picture was so tepid, the label refused to grant the group funds for another video. A shame, since her second single, Cool on Your Island, while still very much a product of its time, is actually a really lovely, tropical-flavored pop song. Why Can't Tori Read the Album Tanked? Its cover, which featured Amos in long black gloves and a black bustier, rocking that same frizzy do and wielding that same random-ass samurai sword, couldn't have helped. A Billboard review noted that Amos was a gifted artist, but concluded, quote, Unfortunately, provocative packaging sends the inaccurate message that this is just so much more bimbo music. Why Can't Tori Reed, whose original lineup had disbanded even before the album was complete, with session players filling in for its recording, officially broke up. Amos was angry, mortified, and crestfallen. When she and I spoke recently, she recalled feeling like she'd hit a musical rock bottom. The worst thing that I could ever imagine in music was to put out a record and be laughed at, be ridiculed. And the, and the thing in L.A. that you really don't want to catch is failure. You will not be going to any parties if you <laughs> have failed. And I remember walking into a little restaurant that I always walked into and these people were in the music business. And as I passed by, they laughed. They laughed at me. You know, it was, it was a fleeting moment because nobody cared. Failure gets brushed under the rug and you get swept out, you know, with the garbage. Amos had abandoned her true love, the piano, to try to emulate the guitar rock she idolized as a kid. She'd sacrificed her integrity and sold herself to market demands and trend-chasing record execs. Now she felt like she not only looked like the bimbo Billboard had called her, but that she was that bimbo. I followed uh, what people were saying at the time, which is embrace the synthesizer and, and embrace this other type of sound. And, you know, the piano's history, that's leave it back in the 70s. So in my dark night of the soul, after that album bombed, I crawled back to the piano and realized that I had to find out who I was. Within a few days of reading that withering review, she ditched the makeup, hairspray, and tight pants. She rented a piano because she couldn't afford to buy one and vowed to never leave it. Betray it, she says, again. I'd worn so many masks to try and get out of the barroom that um, I didn't know who I was anymore. So the piano had to take me back to when I was five years old studying at the Peabody Conservatory and, and take me back to a magical time when, when music was magic and I had completely burned that to the ground. 
To recapture the Tori Amos she thought she was destined to be, she began working on demos for a solo album, what would eventually become 1992's Little Earthquakes. For four years, she played and she wrote, working with producers Eric Ross and David Sigerson on a batch of piano-driven songs and adding some quote-unquote sonic sweetening, as Amos puts it. She was dressing the way she wanted to, think lots of Patagonia, and finally making the music she wanted to make. No barroom covers, no glossy cock rock. She was proud of what she'd done. It felt honest. Though Why Can't Tori Read have flopped, Atlantic Records kept Amos's contract. The label was eagerly awaiting her next effort. But the guys on top were unimpressed when she submitted a batch of piano-based tracks. They didn't get it and thought it had no place in the musical landscape in 1990. In their minds, the girl in a piano thing was still dead on arrival. At the time, the piano was not cool. So Elton and, and Billy, it was they were still touring the world, and they were, you know, these legends where it was um, embraced and accepted because of their track record. They'd been around a long, long time. But really, uh, what was happening in the music scene was women like Tracy Chapman and Suzanne Vega, the guitar um, was being embraced, which is great. But the piano was seen as some kind of, um, well, let's put it this way, not part of the Seattle sound. Not, it, it wasn't considered, oh, this could stand next to grunge and be badass. For this album to move forward, the men at the top said the piano had to go. But Amos couldn't bear the thought of that. She was freaking out scrambling to find a solution. When we turned in the record, then it was it was not accepted. So uh, the suggestion was from a producer to the head of Atlantic at the time, who was Doug Morris. The suggestion was take all the pianos off and put guitars on. And Doug and I were able to come to a different outcome, which was I would turn in a few more produced tracks and so I turned to Eric Ross and musicians that I knew in L.A., friends, to come and collaborate. And then that was the next stage. Up next, after the break, we look at how a 26-year-old Tori Amos rebounded from another rejection to create a landmark album that would eventually have a seismic impact on pop music. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The year was 1990. Though her label had essentially told Tori Amos to ditch all her pianos for guitars to save her first solo album, she was determined to get it made without sacrificing her vision. She knew she couldn't defy the powers that be. So she decided to write four more tracks to prove her viability. The label agreed to let her. The first of those four songs was Girl, a track she wrote after she left LA and flew back to DC to see her parents. They drove out to an old farm in the mountains of Virginia where her father had grown up. She was surrounded by calm, far away from the din of the big city. She took long walks with her mother, who made dinners from their garden. One night, while her mother was rocking in her rocking chair, Amos sat at the upright piano and wrote Girl, the track that would bridge the gap between the earlier rejected songs of her debut solo album and what would eventually become its final version. Yes, the song would feature guitars, but the piano was its backbone, and Girl was about Amos finding her backbone. So Girl was documenting what I was going through in my battle at that time. Girl was reflecting what I was living at the time, which was she's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her own. And it's like, yes, yes, T.A., come on. You've, you've got to stop being um, such a sponge and just saying, okay, I'll twist myself and turn myself into whatever you want just because you want to leave the bar room. What if you never leave the bar room? You need to go there because if you can accept that, then you will write what you need to write for your soul. The match was lit. Amos had found her spark. She proceeded to write the tracks Precious Things, Tear in Your Hand, and Little Earthquakes, all of which included both piano and guitars. If the label felt the girl and the piano thing was dead, Amos proved she and her music were very much alive. Meanwhile, label head Doug Morris had returned to one of the original rejected tracks Amos had submitted, a piano and string-led song called Silent All These Years. He had listened to it going home in his car one night, and he got it. The penny dropped, and he said, okay, I realize this, this was one of the original 12, but I get it. I get it now, and I think you need to go to England. And I went, pardon? <laughs> what? what? He said, yes. I have a counterpart over there called Max Hole East West Records in London, and he will get it. He will understand. And his team will understand what to do with this. And that was the next phase of the journey. Amos flew to England and recorded a handful of B-sides and the last two of the 12 tracks that would appear on Little Earthquakes, China and Me and a Gun. She handed over the new guitar-laced songs along with six of the original piano-led songs she presented. The label accepted the retooled material. It would release Amos's first solo album, in January of 1992. One of Little Earthquake's most beloved songs, Silent All These Years has become Amos's calling card. Like Girl, it's about losing and finding one's voice, a story Amos knew all too well after Why Can't Tori Reed bombed and she rekindled her love of the piano. Amos was inspired to write it after reading Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid with her young niece Cody. In the classic fairy tale, the titular heroine loses her voice. As Amos said in a 2009 Rolling Stone interview, watching Cody respond to this young woman giving up her essence and power all for something else. In that moment, I realized that when she had no voice, that just completely took me to the place where I needed to go to reclaim it.
Amos has said, Silence All These Years is one of the most important songs in her 30-year repertoire. As she writes in Resistance, she was the life support that helped me survive a severe personal and artistic crisis. The songs that would form little earthquakes were the sound of Amos finding her voice, taking charge of her destiny. She writes, It was a long and arduous climb to songwrite my way out of a very personal hell. Silent All These Years would become much bigger than her. It would eventually serve as a rallying cry for women and men who'd been suppressed, degraded, harassed, assaulted. It was the ultimate survivor's anthem. In the fall of 1991, just before Silent All These Years was released as a single in the UK, the subject of sexual harassment had begun dominating headlines. Anita Hill had come forward, accusing U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, her supervisor at the U.S. Department of Education and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, of sexually harassing her. A black woman, she presented her case to a Senate Judiciary Committee of 14 white men. The world watched in awe. I found it really intriguing that people were gravitating toward that song. Anita Hill had just been um, on television. I saw her on television, and she said something to the effect of, I I couldn't stay silent any longer, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And within two weeks, three weeks, silent all these years, was getting played on the radio in England. This was volcanic, what was happening with Anita Hill. This was shocking the world and the courage that it took for her to speak. And it just so happened that this song, Silent All These Years, was coming out within a couple weeks of this shock. So it be, it was really relevant at the time. And when I was writing it, you have no idea what circumstances are going to cross a song's path, which then becomes part of the narrative. Silent All These Years was not Amos's first single. It was included as a track on her first single, Me and a Gun. But because it was the more accessible song, radio stations opted to play it instead. So the Me and a Gun single was re-released soon after, entitled Silent All These Years. It's not that surprising that DJs avoided Me and a Gun. The song is totally a cappella, just Amos detailing her sexual assault, which occurred when she was 21 years old and living in Los Angeles. Certain facts were changed. While the narrator in the song was raped at gunpoint, her attacker had a knife. The imagery is nonetheless chilling, harrowing. Years after the incident, she saw the 1991 movie Thelma and Louise, in which a female character is nearly raped, and realized she had to tell her story. As she recalled to CBS News in 2017, I think I saw it 15 times, and then it began to come from deep within. Amos has called the process of writing Me and a Gun difficult and raw. The song itself is difficult to listen to because it's so raw. Amos traces the thoughts running through her head while she's being assaulted, some horrifying, some absurd. Her account unfurls like a stream of consciousness. She sings about Jesus, Mr. Ed, Carolina Biscuits, how she must survive her assault because she hasn't been to Barbados. And I want to live, she vows at one point. It is all so close to the bone. You are right there with her. While playing Little Earthquakes over the years, I would often skip the track. If I didn't play it, it wasn't real. As Amos said in an interview with Rolling Stone, and it was through gut-wrenching pain, hysteria, I think, that the music began to come. In the quiet, in the silence, being alone. I couldn't speak to or be with anybody, so I just went off to one of my secret, private haunts that you go in the world. You just leave everything you know and go. That's what I did. And when I came back out again, this song was walking hand in hand with me. It became something I had to sing to move forward. Music journalist Ann Powers, who collaborated with Amos on her book Piece by Piece, describes the singer's place in the rock landscape in 1992 as a precarious one. Solo female artists then had to navigate a male-dominated industry 
and play the game while still trying to preserve their vision. But they carried another heavy burden on their shoulders. They were symbols, heroines, idols who were supposed to represent their female listeners and speak to them, says Powers. At that time, there were bands there were some all women bands or some bands that you know in which women and men played together but more often than not the successful artists were solo women or women who were perceived as solitary um who were expected to articulate this kind of separateness this kind of solitude this kind of like weird Joan of Arc uh you know I'm out here leading something but but I'm only listening to the voices in my head. Powers considers Mean a Gun Amos's most impressive political statement in the 90s. As such a such an incredible, uh, brave act. But, you know, it's an acapella. It, it, she performs it alone. Like Silent All These Years, Mean a Gun did forge a strong connection with listeners. It, too, became an anthem. But not for victims, but for survivors. For many, it was the Me Too of its time. Amos told me about a moment in 1994 when she began to understand the impact of the song and her music in general. A young girl attending one of her shows was watching her perform Me in a Gun and was deeply moved. And she fainted during the song. Um, and after the show, they had taken her backstage and she told me her story. And she said... Can I please come on the road? I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll work in the kitchens or what, whatever I can do. Um, because my stepfather raped me last night. He will tomorrow night. And when I get in tonight, he will. And so I was, of course, you're coming on the road with me and we'll figure it out. But Amos too was young and didn't comprehend the possible ramifications. I didn't understand what was happening, but I saw the terror in the eyes and in my, um, uh, well, it, just trying to do something. You're trying to do something. So I, I get a call from legal coming into the venue saying, you will be arrested for kidnapping. You are crossing state line tonight on the buses and you will be arrested. And at the time, there just wasn't um, a place where I knew where to call. Realizing her initial plan was just too risky, the singer backed down. She had to leave the girl behind. I watched her go. I've never seen her again. I've never heard from her again. And it plagues me to this day because we have no idea. But this fan and her tragic story stayed with Amos. She was inspired that same year to become the first spokesperson for Rain the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, the largest nonprofit anti-sexual assault organization in the U.S. It operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline, a 24-hour, toll-free phone service that routes callers to the nearest local sexual assault service provider. Since it was founded in 1994, it has helped more than 3 million survivors and their loved ones. Delicate, daring, damning, clever, funny, seductive, and incendiary, Little Earthquakes was the sound of Tori Amos finally finding her voice, or at least really starting to. Its first track, Crucify, opens with lyrics that by turns convey strength, defiance, fear, and vulnerability. Every finger in the room is pointing at me, Amos sings. I want to spit in their faces, then I get afraid of what that could bring. The final track, Little Earthquakes, culminates with the artist repeating what could be considered the album's thesis. Give me life. Give me pain. Give me myself again. Amos knew that the truth is scary, messy, sometimes almost unbearable but she also knew that it must be told at all costs. On this record, nothing is off limits. Lust, heartache, religion, masochism, the beauty of childhood, the pain of adolescence, dreams, 
wasted dreams, nightmares, mortality. The singer herself admits that the guitar, as the label insisted she include, did indeed lend a gravity to the proceedings, as does its colossal percussion, which often sounds tribal or primordial, like it's rising from the planet's core and bursting through the surface, echoing the title of the album. Gripping, seething, and unpredictable, songs like Girl, Precious Things, and Little Earthquakes swell into massive, soulful neo-prog rock marvels. Amos' visual collaborators, photographer Cindy Palmano and stylist and creative director Karen Binns, were immediately shaken by the revelations and revolution of Little Earthquakes. Palmano handled not only the photography for the album, but also directed all of its music videos for the songs Crucify, Silent All These Years, Winter, and China. Palmano tapped Binns, who'd recently relocated from Brooklyn to London, to help her establish strong imagery that lived up to Amos' powerful storytelling. The work the three women did together was stark and impressionistic, conjuring the spirit of the 70s, but also feeling like it was suspended in amber. It favored simple props and intimate close-up shots of Amos that make the viewer feel like she's speaking to them and only them. The trio's vision was cohesive, poignant, and haunting. Binns was a hip black art chick who'd pals around with Basquiat in downtown New York in the 1980s. Amos was a Maryland gal into bell-bottom jeans and Led Zeppelin. The two met for an evening coffee and hit it off instantly. Amos would get to wear her flare-legged jeans, but with Bins pulling the strings, she'd pair them with a vintage swimsuit. Amos was drawn to Bins' pluck and her sense of adventure. Bins was drawn to Amos's honesty and her quote-unquote radical points of view. When we spoke recently, this is how Bins described her relationship with the singer. She is the woman that's going to make it happen, that's going to save the life, or that's going to come up with the answer that's truth. You know, to be a part of that for me was everything. That's when I knew I was on the road with someone to do great things. Bins continues to serve as Amos's stylist and creative director to this day. You might be tempted to dismiss Bin's remarks about Tori Amos being the woman who's going to save the life as hyperbole. But looking back on my adolescence, when I was struggling to make sense of my sexuality and my parents' turbulent marriage, I sure the hell felt like she was my savior. Listening to Little Earthquakes not only felt like reading Amos's memoir, it felt like reading mine. I was hardly alone. I discovered over the years that so many of my friends and peers had seen their own heartbreak, confusion, and insolence in these lyrics heard their own pain and redemption in Amos's commanding delivery. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a 30 or 40-something emo artsy type today who hasn't been affected by Amos's music. Lola Van Ella is one of those types. She's a New Orleans-based burlesque artist who has performed Little Earthquake's eighth track, Leather, several times for live audiences. The song, which tackles sex, power, and religion, is a jaunty, cheeky vaudevillian tune that sounds like it fell off the back of the Godspell truck and straight into Amos's lap. It pulls its listeners in instantly with its arresting opening lines. Look, I'm standing naked before you. Don't you want more than my sex? I can scream as loud as your last one, but I can't claim innocence. Vanella has been a fan of Amos since her teenage years when she, like me and so many others, was trying to figure her shit out and find her place in the world. She told me recently... So I think there was like this big explosion of both like raging hormones and also sexual curiosity. And I think that combined with just like all of the normal angsty shit that kids go through. Tori was like the most, it just, she just spoke to me and I really loved how out there she was. I really loved how feral she seemed when she would play the piano. I really just like loved her energy. The idea of being this like fierce, intelligent, open, vulnerable person who is also like so fierce with her sexuality and just being like whatever she wanted kind of blew my mind wide, wide open as, as somebody who was, you know, discovering all of that for myself. Vanella's performance of Leather is atypical for her. First, rather than just interpret it, she actually sings the song. Also, 
she doesn't do her usual burlesque striptease. There's no fancy costume, no dazzling rhinestones. Instead, she walks onto the stage and drops her robe just as she utters that first line, look, I'm standing naked before you. Depending on the venue and its restrictions, she'll either perform the song completely nude, save for a pair of high heels, or, as she puts it, in whatever keeps me legal. She likes to lock eyes with some of her spectators to make them feel squeamish as she gets to the refrain. If love isn't forever, and it's not the weather, hand me my leather. For her, it's about making the audience really think about what they're staring at, what they may or may not be complicit in, who has the control in the room. Vanella's rendition of leather is tantalizing, searching, fierce, unsettling. Everything Amos intended the song to be. Vanella says she's received a lot of feedback from audience members about how the performance surprised and moved them. She attributes this to the way Amos's spry theatrical melody is juxtaposed with his track's rawness and directness. How, well, naked it is. Leather stands on its own as this kind of, uh, I mean, it's just a very, it's a really confrontational piece of songwriting. And, and I think timeless in that way too. Like that song will be a bop forever. You know, it's just like, it's just got such a quality about it that is really, um, yeah, it's a little haunting. It's really beautiful. The haunting beauty of Little Earthquakes had a profound effect on countless musicians. While Amos never became a top 40 artist, her influence could be felt throughout the 90s and beyond. A slew of female singer-songwriters would walk down the road she helped pave. Alanis Morissette, Fiona Apple, Jewel, Paula Cole, Imogen Heap, Dido, Alicia Keys, Bat for Lashes, Lana Del Rey, FK Twigs. I hear Tori Amos all over Taylor Swift's recent albums, Folklore and Evermore. These women found power in their vulnerability. Their mission was to get as close to the truth as possible, no matter how dramatic or dark or ugly or uncomfortable or terrifying it may be. The truth was their weapon. As Karen Bin says of Amos, She became an aesthetic through Little Earthquakes. We started trends through that. We started other artists wanting to portray that and wanting to be like her. Up next, after the break, we speak with Tori Amos herself about her recent book, Resistance, and the dark night of the soul that propelled her to make and remake Little Earthquakes, one of the most significant, enduring albums of the 90s. give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Welcome back to Where Were You in 92? We've been discussing Tori Amos and her groundbreaking 1992 album, Little Earthquakes. Now it's time to hear from the woman behind it, singer-songwriter and piano virtuoso, Tori Amos. So the first question I'm asking guests on this show uh, is a very simple one, but also a very, a very weighted, very layered one, I think, which is, where were you in 1992? Uh, mentally, physically? I was releasing a record called Little Earthquakes. And so I reckon... I was probably in um, the UK, going back and forth to the States in the UK early in 92, and the record came out, and I started to go on a world tour. But it was a rocky road, of course. It was not, uh, it wasn't the easiest. Uh, the conception was not easy, uh, the release wasn't easy, um, and you definitely had to to fight for this record. Yeah, I had uh, to fight. I had to fight for the record. And, and um, the other thing is, it was a process. So it really took about four years, if I'm, if I'm being fair and accurate about the whole thing. And it, it happened in stages. Me and a Gun is a pivotal track, a, a, t- a touchstone in your career. And I mean, you've spoken already about the significance of it and how it resonated with people and um take me to that moment when you knew you had to write that song where you had to include it on the record when the muses spoke to you and said tori this is maybe a risk this is maybe going to be the most challenging moment of your career but we got to do this yes uh there are moments when you're guided and I was guided to do this acapella um, and there's a level of trust that you have with the muses and the moment because my goodness when you're creating and talking about some of the harrowing things um, which some of the songs over the years cover, cover difficult, you know, the skin is off. We're unzipping, getting to those deep emotions that people have been harboring their whole lives and you're, and you're going into the wound. And how you go into that wound and then how you hopefully the song walks with someone through their dark night. You know, that, that is what the muses um, do. And, and so being part of that, there's a huge responsibility because you're thinking, if I get this wrong, if I get this wrong, if I tell this story wrong, then what I don't want to do harm. I don't want to take somebody to a place and get them shattered. You want to take them to a place of recognition of, okay, this might've happened to him, to her, to them, and then they, fa- they, they find something empowering by it. Now, maybe there's a long journey that has to happen from victim to survivor. Maybe there's a lot of work that will have to be done. But the first step is always acknowledging and, and not running away, you know, from, from those um, tragic moments that's that sometimes people want to block out so uh working with rain all these years has really taught me taught me a lot and the people that are on that front line every day um wow what a commitment that they have but it all started by a song that then people um people embraced and then told their story to me i've always been you know, interested in why you decided to do it a cappella, and if you were met with 
not to go back to this word again, but resistance from from the label because not only did this song not have guitars, it didn't even have pianos. It had nothing. It was the most, it was the rawest thing imaginable. Well, there was a faction at yeah. the label that didn't want this song on mm-hmm. and and said, this is, you know, this is really disturbing. I'm disturbed by this. And I said, if you were not disturbed by this, then that would be scary. You need to be disturbed. Sometimes music wants to be disturbing. That's what it is. So let's not resist that. Let's embrace that. But I had to really, again, I had to put up a resistance of capitulating. I had to be strong. I had to stand by um, the songs. And, and also, I had to listen to some of the improvements that the team wanted me to make because you know we're back to babies in bathwater just throwing everything out just to dig your heels and that's not very clever so sometimes taking on board somebody's comment some someone's critique of something so that we can improve it and that was a huge learning curve as a creator when do you have a think tank where you can agree with some things and then you think well not so fast i i i think we're having a knee-jerk reaction, and we need to be bold and brave and stand by the acapella track, and it stays on. And you made, you made concessions. Yes, absolutely. You, know, you went back and you said, okay, I'm not going to give you one song with guitars. I'm, I'm going to give, give you four. four. <laughs> including Girl, including Precious, uh, Precious thing. Things. For anyone who thinks, who's not as familiar with your music, which... That's criminal, but and thinks <laughs> that Tori Amos cannot rock. You've never heard Precious Things because hearing that is revelatory. The drums alone are massive. And then the bridge is just explosive. And also, you use these voices throughout the record, and you use them in Precious Things, and you use them in, in Girl, and they almost, it's a male voice, and it almost sounds demonic. It mm. sounds dark. And I've always, you know, I've always wondered. It, it really stood out to me when I discovered this record and fell in love with it because I had never really heard anything like it. Can you tell me a little bit about that? About those almost. So things like Precious Things, the voices. I was going through, um, you know, I was crossing the river sticks. I was going to meet Persephone. I was in Hades because. I had failed, but through the failure and being on your knees and being in the muck, which has happened at different times in my life, not all records come from there, but a few have. Um, This one, Scarlet's Walk and Ocean to Ocean, they've come from a place of deep despondency and and deep um, heartache because, you know, I'd lost myself. But the truth is, I had lost myself a long time before that, Jason. I I started losing myself when I started chasing it. And when I started chasing it in my early 20s and just saying, well, I've got to get out of the barroom, so I'll do anything to get out. I'll, I'll write any song I need to write. And so, you know, talk about the fame whore. The fame whore archetype um, just took over my brain and my my pen and my piano. And I allowed her to do that. I allowed her to do that. And so these songs and these voices that you talk about, there's a there's a conjuring and there's a there's a narrative that I was trying to tell sonically. Uh, I was trying to explain. The, the level of emotions that were happening at the time. It, it to me, has always felt like this internal tug of war with you and your past, with you and what people want you to be versus what you want to be, their voice versus your voice. They are dragging you down. You're looking for uplift. I'm dragging me down. Yeah. So, so they're was, actually you. Yeah. You would say those voices are, are, or maybe, maybe, maybe they were your, 
Well, I have saboteur to at the time. Yeah, or, my, yes, my yeah. saboteur. Absolutely spot yeah. on. I have to take responsibility for listening to opinions, to chasing it. And I, I'm sure any artist that's listening right now that has, has thought, okay, you know, this is a hard slog. When you get rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection, we're talking years and years and years and years and years and years. Then you go, okay, maybe I'm on the, maybe this um, singer-songwriter talking about my emotions, maybe I'm on the wrong path. Maybe I need to write in another way. So then you start listening to what people and the labels are signing and what they want to be. And all of a sudden you think, oh, okay, well, maybe I can do that. But just because you can do it because you have the musicality doesn't mean anybody's going to believe you because it's disingenuous, because it's a lie. Now, I think some people can create a character and step into that character and it works and they have the facility to make that happen. But that was not working for me. So this was, this was, yeah, this was much, you really wanted to, like you said, you wanted to rekindle your relationship with the piano and you wanted this to be your, your record. You came back with Girl, Precious Things. What were the other two tracks? Oh my goodness, you're testing me now. No, I'm, I'm trying Te to, was Little Earthquakes one? Because that's rocks. Yeah. And Tear in Your Hand. Tear in Your Hand, which... Yeah, also has guitars, yes. Um, all wonderful tracks. I can't imagine that record not having those tracks. Looking back, do you think, my God, I'm so happy they made it onto the record. I don't know what it would be without them. Ab or do you, yeah. Absolutely, Jason, because yeah. without them. And, and Me and a Gun wasn't on the right. original record. That came later. <gasps> so, okay, so that was something else you submitted after the guitars yes, tracks? after the guitars. <laughs> so you gave them that? Yeah. So that you yes. could probably, you know, were, were you thinking, I'm going to give them this so that I get a win later? When I was in England, I wrote Mina Gun after I turned in these four. Okay. And we recorded a song called China. Mm -hmm. So um, what had been the original 12 songs, those songs became B-sides, the ones that were moved aside for the four and then China and Mina Gun. So... Yes, it's a completely different record. So if Doug had gotten it from the beginning, it wouldn't be what it is. So that's where sometimes you, you have to kind of go through the process in the battle. And out of the battle, um, I hung on to the pianos, but we got seven tracks that because of his perception, um, that we wouldn't have had. So, you know, it, that's where the magic of a relationship can create something good. What do you think of the current state of affairs with, with women in the music industry? Do you think it has gotten easier, harder? Do you think there are new battles to fight? I think the words easier and harder are tricky words because I don't want to dilute it down to either one. There are challenges always to um, stand by your art. And Let's face it, there, there are some artists that have a tougher trek up the mountain than others. Some doors open for whatever reason. It might be the people that they're working with. I'm not saying that they're not great, but there are some artists out there that I know of who, who have really um, sometimes had to do serious battle. And so I think when you ask me about female artists today. Of course they have challenges. We had challenges then. What is true, what is absolutely a fact, though, is that you have a big microphone that can get direct to the fans so that it's, it's more difficult for somebody to gaslight somebody or go somebody. That's how this happened a lot, Jason, in the 90s, where you don't have to sell an artist to another label. If you've signed seven records with an with option on an eight album, that's 16 years of your life. And that's if you're really prolific and fast. Yes. So in 16, you know, 16 years or even 20 years, 
That's a lot of records. That's a lot of time. And what some, what a label can do is make sure your value on the street plummets. So if there is some kind of, what do you call it, persecution going on, mm. or if there's some kind of punishment situation, because it's who do you think you are as an artist standing up to a great CEO. And this happened, um, mentioning no names, but people would be shelved. So they wouldn't be sold and, and um, their, their record would just be shelved. And in, unless they had a really good attorney, mm -hmm. really good lawyer, which costs a lot of money to move that, then that's just a tragic story that, yeah. that would happen. But now with social media, an artist has the ability to share with the public, because the public I don't think knows what happens behind the curtain. They, cer they certainly didn't know in the 90s. If you could say to someone who had not, has not listened to Little Earthquakes yet, which again, criminal, uh, <laughs> well, w w if going into this record, telling this person what to expect and what you think its legacy is, what would you say, Tori? Well, I, I guess the point of Little Earthquakes is encouraging people to be their own person. And sometimes you don't know exactly who you are. And that's okay. You know, the, the given that everybody knows who they are, some people do. Some people have tapped into that and accepted that. But some, some of us had to try different pieces on, pieces of ourselves, and then you make this mosaic. It, you take the pieces and then you find the whole. Sometimes some of us are bits of stained glass, right? That that then make a different picture once you stand back from it. Not everybody is a solid, um, you know, art, walking piece of art. Some of us came in pieces, and that's okay, and that's what I think Little Earthquakes helped me to find. To work on this episode, I had to look back at some pieces of myself I'd frankly wish to forget. Pieces from a distant past. When it came time to press play and revisit Little Earthquakes, I realized I hadn't listened to the album from start to finish in years. It was just too painful. I took a deep breath, bracing myself for the memories that would come flooding back. By the time I reached the end of it, I felt the same catharsis I had the first time I'd heard it. The tenth time. The hundredth time. The five hundredth time. I felt some of the sadness I had as a lonely, broken teenager. But I also felt so much more powerful, aware of how far I'd come, grateful, stronger. Until very recently, I hadn't been back to my hometown in years. My parents moved away after I graduated high school. My father died. My mother met someone else and moved to the country. In a strange twist of fate, while working on this episode, I found myself returning to that hometown for a funeral. My dear friend from high school, the one who'd helped introduce me to the glory of Tori, had lost her dad. To pay my respects and support her and her family, I had to book a flight and go face my past. All those ghosts. Two days after the funeral, after having nervously set foot in that place I used to call home, I was sitting in my mom's rocking chair on her front porch, starting to write this script. I again felt that adolescent sadness, and the newer sadness, and adult sadness. Sadness over lives changing. Sadness over death. Sadness over the passing of time. But I also felt proud, serene, comfortable knowing all those ghosts were pieces of me. Like Tori Amos, like the countless fans whose lives she figuratively and literally saved, I'd survived. I had found my voice. You in 92 was a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. 
The show is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jason Lanfier, with editing and sound design by Michael Alder-June. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.